Good morning, everybody. My name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic since April 12th of 1990. Haven't found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol or other mood-altering substances, and that's been absolutely, positively the best thing that's ever happened to me. And uh, I'm glad I hang around to Sunday. You knew sooner or later it was going to be a good joke, you know. <laughs> no offense, Victor. No offense. Uh, it is good to be here, and uh, I want to start off just by thanking everybody uh, that's here, you know, and uh, certainly Rick, my host, and Steve, and Bill, and all the people that put these things on, the whole committee, you know, the people that did the food out there for us this week, you know, all these little things. Uh, you know, I, I've two things about Alcoholics Anonymous I've always thought. You know, we have noisy AA and we have quiet AA, you know, and uh, I love noisy AA, right? I love to come and have fun and talk at these conferences and we listen to each other. But then I realized the real deal is what we call quiet AA. That's the AA that goes on and nobody pays attention. It happens behind the scenes. This is little trusted servants that made the sandwiches this week and got the donuts out. And, you know, and I always tell the guys I sponsored, you know, they, uh, they're mouthing off and spitting the 12 steps out. And I always ask them, how's your quiet AA? You know, because quiet AA has been so important to me because that was the time you guys spent with me after the meetings in the parking lot. That was the time that you met me for coffee somewhere and took some time out. So, you know, I love Quiet AA. And I also want to thank all of you for being here on Sunday morning. You know, when you're the Sunday morning speaker, it's kind of like being the Maytag repairman, you know. Everything's already been fixed. <laughs> you know? There's not much I can add to what you've heard this week. You know, you've had some just great, great messages, great, powerful speakers. Uh, also, in the whole thank you thing, I... I want to thank my uh, my roadies here from Louisville who came up with me, Kevin and Ellie and Matt, who, by the way, Matt just celebrated eight months of continuous sobriety. <laughs> he, he's one of my he's one of my grandbabies and uh, really really happy his first conference that he came along to. You know, we were we were kidding about this today, but my sponsor Don always says, you know, Tim, there's. 95% of the people that come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they get sober and they hang around, they have a home group, and it's all okay. He said, you know what, but there's 5% of the people who want it all. There's 5% of the people who take every opportunity they can to get out of their comfort zone to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. And those are people like you. Those are people who take their time out of their weekend to come and participate in a conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, those are the people. You know, I, I got guys in my home group. They've never been out of their home group. Their whole AA world is their home group. And I said, guys, you know, your home group can be as little as you want. I mean, your AA world can be as little as you want, or it can be as big as you want. So when you're asked to go somewhere, go. And so I really appreciate these three coming down because, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's been a good experience for them. But sharing it with you, you know, means means so, so much. I also want to thank our uh, our tapers, Kenny and Bill over here, came all the way from Omaha, Nebraska. And, you know, it's a vital, vital service that they, they do. Because when I was early in recovery, and you're right, uh, Rick, it was tapes back in those days. And I got a bunch of cassette tapes. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But, but the bottom line was they said, Tim, take these and listen to it. Because listening to anybody other than yourself is very important, you know. And I would ride around in my car listening to Sandy Beach and listening to Clancy and listening to Tom I, listening to my sponsor, Don M. 
who, by the way, has been my sponsor for the last 17 years. And uh, you might want to keep him in your prayers. Don's been fighting a little bit of cancer. Uh, he's doing well. Everything looks pretty good at this point in time, but I, I certainly would ask you to have prayer. So I do want to thank you know our, our tapers over there for the service that they provide Alcoholics Anonymous. No, they're not getting rich doing this. These two guys are sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, just like we are. And I'd like to give them a hand for being here with us today. <laughs> you know, and I want to thank our speakers. And as I said, you know, when you're the Sunday morning speaker and you're an alcoholic, it really works on your ego, right? I missed Bill's talk, but then Pearl gets up and does this amazing thing with these bricks and, uh, and, and actually describes the spiritual malady of alcoholism better than anybody I've ever seen. Because all those little bricks I recognize are part of what's wrong with me. The only thing was we were talking at breakfast. Maybe this is a guy thing, but I kept thought, thinking if you got those bricks up, they were going to go over your head, and then you were going to say, and I did this 12 steps, and you knock them all down, you know? <laughs> but anyway, thank you. And then little Amy, I want to tell you, Amy had to go back home. Alcoholism is running rampant in her family. She has a sister who's in and out of the rooms of AA, and unfortunately that sister was watching the kids, and that sister is missing in action. So... Amy and her dad had a, had a head back, and I think you saw the great passion that Amy has. She's in my home group. She has for Alcoholics Anonymous. And then Dick, I don't, uh, I don't see Dick, but last night, you know, Dick was in Louisville and AA before I got into it, and I'd heard so much about him for so many years. So it was really good to, uh, to get with him. And, then, of course, the best speaker, I don't see Barbara's here, but I learned long ago to, to make the Al-Anon the best speaker. Your weekend goes a lot better, you know, when you do that. But anyway, thank you all. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I do. I love everything about it. And, you know, there's been a lot in, uh, recently in the papers and on our news about diversity in our country, right? And it's spouting up, causing problems everywhere. And, you know, how lucky are we in Alcoholics Anonymous? We do not have a diversity problem here, right? My home group is in uh, the inner city of Louisville, downtown Louisville, right? It's down in the hood, you know. And as a direct result of my home group being in the hood, Probably about 70% of the guys I sponsor are African-American. They're black men. And I don't think a whole lot about it. That's where I got sober. That's where I hang out. About six, ten years, I guess it's eight, nine years ago now, down in Louisville, they changed Oak Street from a one-way street to a two-way street. And this is about three blocks from my home group. All right? And one day I'm going down Oak Street to get on the expressway. Now keep in mind, I'm about three blocks from my home group, and all of a sudden I get hit in the rear end. And the guy that hits me, turns out, is an elderly black gentleman and his wife. So we're standing in the middle of the street waiting for the police to come. Now keep in mind, I'm about three blocks from my home group. About that time, here come two guys down this side of the street, both black. They ran over to me and said, hey, Tim, you okay, buddy? You all right? I go, yeah, guys, I'm all right. About that time, two guys came down the other side of the street, both African-American. They ran over to me, Tim. You okay? Anything we can do? I said, guys, all right. About the time, car came off expressway. Five guys in there, all black. They stopped the car and said, Tim, are you hurt? Can we take you anywhere? I said, guys, I'm all right. Go ahead. I didn't think anything about it. I turned around. The early black gentleman hit me with standing there. He went, who are you anyway? <laughs> what can I tell that guy, right? I'm just a drunk, you know? Our book says we are people who normally would not mix. But what grows up amongst us is a fellowship that's indescribably wonderful. I'll tell you one other quick story. I had never spoken outside of Louisville. 
and Don sent me down to Cherokee, North Carolina to speak at a Cherokee Indian Reservation conference. (laughs) And I am so nervous. I get down there, I'm the only non-Native American speaker, and I do not look like an Indian. And I get up there to talk, and there's the chief sitting there, and there's the medicine man guy over here. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to say. The next thing I hear coming out of my mouth is, hey, you guys, you know what? When I was a kid and I used to watch those Cowboys and Indians movies, I pulled for the Indians, man. I swear I did. (laughs) And here's the thing. The chief started to laugh a little bit, and I thought, well, I'm okay here. After the meeting, he grabs me and says, hey, boy, we was kind of worried about you, but when you got there and told those lies, we knew you was in the right place. (laughs) Oh, man, you got to love AA, right? You got to love it, you know. Where can you come for throw a buck in the basket, you know, and have the uh, entertainment and the camaraderie and the fellowship that we have? You know, for the new people, which is always the bottom line of these things, you know, and I know some new people are here. Let me share with you. When I was new like you are today and I sit in the chairs where you are and I listen to the speaker, here's what I did. I couldn't help it. I listened to what you did that I didn't do, you know. I was all about that. I'd be listening to your talk thinking, well, I did that, I did that, uh-uh, did not do that, did not do that, no. Next night, next speaker, did it, did it, did, uh-uh, did not do that. Because if I thought I get enough didn'ts, I am out of here, you know. I'm at a meeting, Schnitzelberg meeting in Louisville on Monday night. A woman is speaking, of all things, a lady. Everything this woman did, I did. I'm sitting there thinking, well, I did that, I did that, I did that. Oh, man, I'm screwed, I did that too. But right at the end of her talk, she said, I used to carry a half pint in my bra. I said, I did not do that. <laughs> and I told some old guy about it after the meeting. He said, sound like you're getting a little desperate there to me, kid. And the deal was, uh, I was kind of looking to see what an alcoholic looked like. And you guys said, well, kind of like you. I said, oh, no, no, no. You know what I mean? Dirty old man, raincoat. And you guys said, no, nah, we don't know what you mean. And you know what? That night, there were dirt, no dirty old men in raincoats there. <laughs> Just like here tonight, there's no, there's no raincoats here. <laughs> a few dirty old men here and there, but, but anyway, the bottom line was, you know, I, and I started listening to your stories, and your stories were all over the place. But here's what happened to me then, and this is still important to me today. No matter what your stories were, you guys were talking about three things. You were talking about being restless, irritable, and discontent. Just like Pearl was talking about the other night, she had the components, I think, of what restless, irritable, and discontent's all about. You all were talking about being apart from, not a part of. You were talking about progressive patterns of dishonesty in your life. Now I'm like, oh no, if those three things have got anything to do with what's wrong with me, I am screwed because those three things, you guys, have been part of my life from the get-go. From the get-go, those three things I've wrestled with right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 25-plus years. Restless, irritable, and discontent, what is it? I don't know what it is, baby, but I have got it, you know. I've had it for as long as I can remember. You know, we talk about the hole in the gut that the wind blows through. What Pearl was talking about the other night, I don't know what it is. I just know it's always been there. And when I was 13 years old, it put alcohol on that it took it away. And for the next 27 years, when that feeling came, I took a drink of alcohol to deal with it. And for a long time it worked, and then one day it didn't work. You know, apart from, not a part of, that's a huge piece of my disease, because I tell you, 25 years sober, and there's still a little voice in my head, there's still a little piece of me, 
all right, that wants to be different. There's still a little piece of me that wants to speak up and say, Tim, you're not quite like them. You know, I'm driving down 64, coming to Owensboro. I know half of you in here from other places. But the little voice will go, Tim, you're not one of them. They'll know you're from Louisville, buddy. You know, they'll know you're different. There's this little voice. And see, I think that's the voice that kills alcoholics. That one little piece that we become just not enough or just different enough that one day you look around and say, what happened to that Tim guy? He was a pretty good guy, but he's gone, you know? I relate to this, and you may or may not. Some of the silliest things in my early sobriety struck home to me. I have eight grandbabies, and I love to watch old movies with them. And one of my favorite movies of all time is E.T., The Extraterrestrial. And the reason is, back in the 80s when that movie came out, I was out... And I saw it for the first time. I was all drunk up with some woman that I think I was engaged to. You know, one of those deals. And uh, if you remember the movie, there's a part in the movie where E.T., the little Martian, he gets all sick. He gets green and gray, crinkly. He's drying up. He's dying. But all of a sudden, he looks up in the sky and he goes, Home, home, E.T., home. Man, tears just started coming down my face. This girl I was with said, what is wrong with you? I said, I know just how he feels, you know. <laughs> and you know what? You could tell that same story in church. Nobody gets it. You, know? you tell that in an AA meeting. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, baby. I know what you're talking about. I've been trying to get home my whole life. Don't know where it is. Don't know where I'm going. But I ain't there. You know, is that not the disease of alcoholism? And the last thing you all were talking about was progressive patterns of dishonesty in my life. And what I realized is I looked at my whole life, the truth was never good enough for me. In fact, the truth wasn't good enough even, you know, I couldn't accept the truth even when the truth would have been good enough. I mean, I remember as a kid, I was a pretty good athlete. I'll talk about that in a minute. If I scored 20 points in a game, I came home and said, how many points you score? I'd say 24, you know. Got to be on the test. What would you get? 10 B+. Plus. And I'm 10, 12 years old, and I'm thinking, why do I do that? Why isn't the truth good enough for you, Tim? And I really believe this today. If you're a budding alcoholic as I was, you almost intuitively know that the truth cannot be good enough. You know, If you want to drink the way I wanted to drink and act the way I wanted to act, I knew I was going to have to get outside the truth. I really believe that. And, and today, as I said, you know, what I know, it is such a core of the, of the disease that is, is Pearl, and everybody's talked about this week. It's, it's been all about getting honest about who I was. You know, and I say all that to say this, restless, irritable, discontent, apart from, not a part of, and progressive patterns of dishonesty in my life. You see, what I just described is the spiritual malady called alcoholism and everything that goes with it, you know? It's a disease of body, of mind, and the spirit, you know? And the good news, though, if you're new, we have a deal that covers the whole bag of tricks. You know, restless, irritable, and discontent. They said, Tim, when that feeling comes, instead of taking a drink, we're going to hook you up with a new power if you want to grab onto it. Apart from, not a part of, we're going to give you the great fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all you've got to do is drag your raggedy old button here every day. And Tim, this thing about lying, we're going to give you the 12 steps. And we promise you, if you do those 12 steps, you'll find your truth. You'll be able to accept your truth and you'll be able to live happy, joyous, and free. And Tim, you know, and then what I want to say is, what I've come to understand about our program, it's all or none. You either take the whole bag or nothing. And I say that because I don't know around here, but around Louisville, what tends to happen, we've got fellowship people and we've got program people as if they existed separately. 
And what I have to remind myself is that the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous, those 12 spiritual principles that we like to claim, they kind of been around a little bit before Bill Wilson, right? Trust God, clean house, help others. (laughs) That goes way back. The magic was when they found two alcoholics got face to face and they did those 12 spiritual principles together, the magic happened. So it takes the fellowship, it takes the home group, it takes the service, and it takes the execution of the 12 steps, you know. And that's what I'm saying, unfortunately. You know, a lot of guys I sponsor, they might want to do 80% of that or even 95% of that. But you know what? What they told me, Tim, that 5% you leave out, that's the part that's going to kill you. That's the part you're leaving out. And that's what I'm saying. I was quicker into the program than I was into the fellowship. And, I'm, and I watched the older guys, and I saw how important the fellowship was to them and how they helped each other out and how they picked each other up. You know, I'm seeing more and more as I get older how important the fellowship is as we supplement and support this spiritual program of action. You know, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family in Louisville. It wasn't if you were going to drink, it was when and how good were you going to do it, you know. Uh, and I guess my thought was, you know, I'm going to do it. But I'm not going to do all this fighting and all this getting locked up like my elders are doing, you know. And uh, truth was, you know, I turned out worse than anybody. But my point was, it didn't sneak up on me. You know, and I remember my daddy was one of these guys. And and I'll say this to you, alcohol actually worked for me before I ever tasted it. (laughs) And this is real important because one of the things I never could come to grasp with, and it did something different for me than it did for the normal person. But anyway, my daddy was one of these guys, if he didn't stop at the tavern, excuse me, if he didn't stop at the tavern on the way home, we knew what was coming in that door, right? And the seven of us, I was the oldest of seven kids, we'd be sitting at that uh, kitchen table, and I'd watch him come in, and he'd have that look on his face like he was going to kill somebody, but then he'd reach up in that cabinet, get that Yellowstone whiskey, He'd knock him a big old hit of that. Then he'd take a beard, pop that thing, go pop, 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 and his head would go And I'd be sitting there going, man, that felt good, you know. <clears throat> I'm watching his face going, I don't know what happened there, but I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Somebody told me once, you know, uh, Tim, if you're 10 years old catching the buzz watching people drink, you're probably going to have a problem, you know. <laughs> and the, the deal was, you know, is that, it did something so much different for me than it did to the normal person. And I finally came to understand that when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I have a wife today again. She's one of those persons, half a glass of wine. Oh, i got to quit. You know, I'm getting tipsy. <laughs> I don't understand it, but I do know there are people that are different, okay. It didn't do for a lot of people what it did for me, and that's what makes me uniquely different as an alcoholic. You know, what I'll share with you is alcohol and alcoholism would start at a very early age to take from me everything that it would ever mean anything to me. And the reason I say it that way was I didn't care what it did to you, but I was really kind of interested in my life. I was really kind of interested that things went well for me. So really what I want to tell you is how alcoholism jumped in front of everything that I ever had hopes and dreams for in my life. You know, I see a lot of people, young people in AA today. You know, and I think back to when I was 15, 16, and 17 years old. I had hopes. I had dreams. I had aspirations. I didn't want to grow up and be a drunk. I didn't want to grow up and be an AA. You know, I wanted to grow up and have a family, live the American dream, you know, be the PTA, coach the Little League. 
But what I know today is if you have the disease called alcoholism, you just don't get those things. And if you get those things, my experience was I didn't get to keep them very long. In my first dream, and you'll relate to this as we sit right in the middle of a gymnasium as a basketball court, in the state of Kentucky, as you know, if you can shoot a ball through a hoop, that's a big deal here, right? And back in the 60s, I was an all-state basketball player. I had my name in the paper a lot. My picture was in the paper a lot in Louisville. And the reason I mention that, that was my whole life. That's the only thing that I ever wanted to do. It was the only thing I cared about. You know, it was the only thing I could do because other than that, I was a six foot four, goofy, pimply, totally afraid of girls type of kid that alcohol was a perfect setup for, right? And nothing, nothing was going to get ahead of that basketball because I had to hang on to it. It was me. It's who I was. And my whole dream, my whole life, was to get a scholarship to Division I college. You know, in my junior year, I got recruited by Kentucky and Duke and some of the big teams, and I found alcohol. <laughs> I didn't see that till lately here. I found alcohol, and my senior year wasn't such as, as good as my junior year. But I still ended up getting a scholarship to St. Louis University. Now, again, you have to understand, I'm a Catholic kid. Getting a scholarship to a Catholic university, Division I, played in the same league with Louisville, Memphis State. I mean, it was a big deal for us, right? And I was the first one to go to college in my family, much less go on a scholarship. And I left here in 1966 in all my glory, right? Mr. Allstate, and I went off to St. Louis. What I'll share with you, alcohol and alcoholism jumped into my life so quick at that point in time that by the first game of my sophomore year, in those days you couldn't play as a freshman, but by the first game of my sophomore year, just like if you came and watched Kentucky Wesleyan here, by the first game of my sophomore year, I showed up to the game so drunk that the other players had to hide me out on the end of the bench so they wouldn't throw me out of school. So it's like coming to watch Kentucky Wesleyan on the end of the bench when the kids is loaded. <laughs> and let me tell you what happened to that day because it really is kind of significant to what happened to the rest of my life. Two things happened that day that we're going to we're going to. Uh, torment me until I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first thing was I had no idea that the first drink was my problem. At 18 years old, I didn't know what a physical allergy and a mental obsession was, and I certainly didn't know what a phenomenon and a craving was. And so what happened is I was walking down the street after class, and the guy said, hey, you want to get a drink? I said, well, yeah. I always said, yeah. I mean, I never turned down a drink. But my mind would say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go have a couple beers. You can come home. Get a shower, get a nap, get up, go to the game. Hey, Tim, you'll probably be the hero. <laughs> That's what my mind always said. Truth was, I never drank two beers in my life, okay? But my mind had the ability to always tell me that's what we're going to do. And as you probably guess, I drank right up into game time. The other piece of that equation is my feelings had gotten hurt. <laughs> you know, this whole business about self-centeredness being the core of this disease, I didn't get this at all until I was about five, six years sober at AA. But the other part of that was the coach had said who was going to start the game, who were going to be the first three substitutes the day before. I wasn't one of them. It hurt little Timmy's feelings. When little Timmy got hurt, little Timmy loved to drink. And so that's what happened. And, you know, the way I like to put that, you know, it's kind of, this is kind of the, the, uh, the, the master for that is there's this phenomenon that I saw in my life, and it kind of goes like this. Sooner or later, whether I'm married to you whether I'm working with you, whether I'm playing on the same team with you, I will start noticing that I'm not getting the respect that a man of my stature should be getting. Man, it's awful. 
I even notice, Pearl, sometimes I'm not getting respect a man 25 years sober in AA should be getting. You know what the thing about AA? <laughs> Nobody cares, man. <laughs> you guys were great. You said, well, Tim, too bad, buddy. We really don't care. You know, uh, if your feelings are hurt, then going down to this another meeting or going down to the bar. You know, that's okay with us, too. But that, that phenomenon was going to continue. So two things happened. I had, I had no idea about the phenomenon of craving. I had no idea that, you know, I was being driven by self-centered, you know, fear and self-centered anger most all the time. As you probably guess, uh, and, and the other part was I wasn't going to get in the game, right? Well, crazy thing. God started to mess around with me pretty much there. I was the third substitute he puts in the game. <laughs> this was not good, you know. I'm out there, I'm seeing like three basketballs bouncing around and, you know, I'm about to throw up, you know. But here's what happens. I'm in the game for two minutes. I got two shots. I swished them both. So not only do I get caught, now I'm like the drunk who made two baskets, right? So I'm going around school the next couple of days saying, hey, anybody can hit them when you're sober. It takes a real guy to knock them down when you're drunk. <laughs> And, you know, as funny as it may seem now, how sad was that? Because what happened at 19 years old, that day alcohol moved to the top spot. That day alcohol went ahead of the only thing I would have told you that I cared about that was important in my life. We have an old guy down in our area who always talks about alcohol. It was his friend. It was his buddy. He'd throw it in the back seat. They'd drive around and have a good time. He said one day he woke up. He's in the back seat. Alcohol was driving, and it was taking him wherever it wanted to go. And the bottom line was, from 19 years old on, alcohol would dictate on a daily basis what I did, who I did it with, and especially where I ended up on any given night, you know. Now, of course, I didn't know that at 19 years old, but, you know, as I look at my story, that was the truth, you know. And as you might guess, the basketball came to a screeching halt in my junior year. And the sad part about that was I didn't care. You know, that's really the thing I had worked my whole life for. The one thing I would have told you, there's nothing more important than this. Alcohol took it like that. You know, and as the rest of my story goes on, you will see it takes everything that I care about like that. It goes by. It takes it so quick. As I look back at my story, I wasn't even paying attention. And I think that's one of the delusions. It's one of the things in alcohol and alcoholism. We're always the last to know. Everybody else is seeing the destruction. Everybody else is seeing the downhill. And we can't see it at all. And anyway, I spent the last couple of years there at, at, uh, at college. You know, my nickname at that college was the Vagabond. Right? There's a great nickname. And the reason I had that name is that's kind of how I lived. You know, I might end up at your house. I might end up at your house. I might end up under a tree. You know, the bottom line was I went wherever the drinking took me on a daily basis. And during that time, I had to compromise the values that my parents had given me because they had given me values. But if you need to drink every day and you're busted, then you do what you have to do. So if I had a steal, I stole. I still had some brain cells left, so I used to take tests for people, and they would pay me to take their tests. And that's where I got my drinking money every day. You know, That was my life at 20, 21 years old. The problem was I kind of wanted to keep the party going, and I'm a little bit behind Dick, about four years, I think, and... In 19670, I had to I had to graduate. My idea was I really wanted to keep the party going if I could, but they said, "No, you got to get out of here. You got enough credits. Your grades are terrible, but we don't want you no more." 
Well, the problem with that, in 1970, there was a thing called the Vietnam War still going on, and it was not going very well by that time, you know. Three of my best buddies had already been brought home in body bags. They also had a thing called the draft lottery at that time, and some of you are that age and remember that. They drew your name out of a hat and your birthday to see when you're going. Well, I was number six. I'm in the top ten, baby, because I am going. And, you know, I would have went. That wasn't that I was going to be a draft dodger, but the bottom line was it, it wasn't my preference. Now, again, back then there was only two ways you could get out of the draft. You could get married. I thought, man, that's awful drastic. <laughs> or, or you could go to grad school, all right? Now, again, and I'm sitting there one day and saying, that's it. That's it. Do you remember in your early adult years when you came up for the, with the plan for the rest of your life? Well, my plan was this. Now, hang with me here because some of you are going to think this is totally insane. Some of you are going to be right with me. Now, keep in mind, this is the 60s. I'm a political science major. Don't ask me why. My, my grandkids ask me all the time, political science, Pawpaws, what's that all about? I said, well, we were going to change the world. You don't understand. But anyway, so here was my plan that this little drunk came up with. I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get into grad school. In fact, I'm going to go to law school. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the test to get into law school. I'm going to pass that test. I'm going to get into law school. Then someday I'm going to run for Congress and someday President of the United States. You know, guys, here's the deal. For me, it's a short trip from street drunk to President of the United States. <laughs> I mean, man, that's how I am thinking, right? Crazy. As you might guess, I went and took the LSAT. I got a terrible score on the LSAT, and the law school turned me down. Now, as meager as it may sound to you guys, man, it was a panic time for me because I thought, Tim, you better come up with a new plan, son, or you're going to be overshooting them up pretty quick. So this hits my head. Tim, why don't you do this? Why don't you stop drinking? You've been a daily drinker now for five years. Why don't you stop drinking and study for that law test because you got the brains you should be able to get into law school. For the next five weeks, I don't drink a drop. And it was awful. You know, I had to get through the shakes. People were out partying and having a good time. I found this real smart egghead guy down the hall, and he tutored me every day on the how to take this law test. Five weeks, no drinking. I gave it the best that God gave, put in me. It came down to the day before the second test. I made a slight change to the plan. The new plan was, all right, I'm ready. I'm going to go out and have a couple beers so I can relax. Come back, get a good night's sleep, get up, take that test, pass that test, get in the law school, Congress, President of the United States. Same plan, one little upfront change. I left on a Friday afternoon for those two beers. I didn't get back to the campus to the following Tuesday. Found out later on I rode around St. Louis on a city bus about a day and a half. What I know today is called a blackout. And unlike Dick was talking about, I did not know what a blackout was until I got to AA. I did know that I used to start somewhere, end up somewhere else with a big old chunk of time going, and I just didn't really think too much about it. Which, if you think about that, that's insanity in itself. And as I told you, I think God was starting to have a good time with me about this time because about 2 o'clock in the morning, I knew I wasn't going to take the test. And I went back to the dormitory, and I found a real smart guy, and I paid him 20 bucks to go take that test for me. And, you know, and I, I, that bothers me today as much as anything I've done because, again, I think, you know, God had given me some brains. But I was more interested in drinking than doing anything else. But anyway, I went back to the dormitory. I paid the guy $20 to go take the test. Unfortunately, in those days, you could do this way too easily. And I stayed drunk for three and a half days. He goes and takes the test. About three weeks later, I got the results of the test the guy takes in my name. <laughs> the guy gets the highest score in the history of the law school. 
<laughs> it was not very funny then, I want to tell you, right? I don't know what the stats were, but let's say 800 was perfect. He got 799. I had gotten like a 300 on the one I took. So now I got two scores over there, 400 points apart. And I remember sitting in my room thinking, what are you going to do now, big shot? And like any good alcoholic, I thought I better get to them before they get to me. And I called the dean and I said, can I see you? And I go to the dean's office. I'll never forget this day. Now here, here's the hero child, Mr. Allstate, 23 years old, going to the dean of a major law school. And this man sits there and he never says a word the whole time. And I said, well, dean, you're probably wondering about the difference in those two scores. I, listen, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. I let somebody else take the test. You know, how did he do? As if I didn't know, right? And I knew that he knew I was lying. I'd been there many times. But what I wanted to share with you, I don't know why I remember this, was I turned to leave that law office that day. What went through my mind very clearly was, Tim, you know what the deal is. Man, it's the booze. The booze took the basketball. The booze took the law school. You should be doing both of them, and you know it. I mean, it was that clear, that moment. And I don't know why it didn't stick, and I guess I don't need to know. The old-timers that said, Tim, it only happens for any of us when God wants us to happen, and that wasn't your day. But I left at a law office, and I turned, and I met two guys that I know. They said, hey, you want to get a drink? And I said, yeah. That was 1970. It was going to be 20 years until I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? But here's what I can tell you. In those four short years, alcohol and alcoholism took from me the very things I would fight you over today. It took my sense of dignity. It took my security. It took my sense of well-being. It took all those things, I think, that we as human beings want so desperately deep down inside. Those are the things Pearl were talking about. That's the things Amy was talking about and Dick were talking about. Those things, you know, alcohol takes our, uh, alcoholism takes our marriages. It takes our money. It takes our jobs. It takes a lot of stuff that we can see. But what we can't see, it takes that eternal moral fiber. That thing as human beings, I think, deep down we all want. And the reason I know that is the last 25-plus years, you guys have helped me get that stuff back, a sense of purpose in my life, a sense of well-being in my life, a sense of security, finally, in my life, because I didn't have any of that, because alcoholism stripped that from me very quickly. So I come back to Louisville, Kentucky, four short years. You know, I took the draft physical. I ended up flunking the draft physical on a congenital birth defect. I thought, man, that has saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know? But anyway, I came back to Louisville and I got into teaching and coaching because I had a degree and I, you know, uh, I played ball. And the very first job I got, they made me listen to this, the dean of students at an all-boys Catholic high school. Some of you already got it. Yeah, they put a drunk in charge of discipline at their school is what they did. <laughs> I want to tell you one quick story. You understand why. I was the dean, right? So you had to check into me in the morning. And most of the time I was hung over, and this one particular day, man, I was sitting over, I had a big old tomato head, man, just trying to get to about 8 o'clock in the morning. And this is back in the 70s, right, when all the kids are out in the parking lot hitting a few doobies, right, to get ready for class. And all of a sudden I look up one day, this kid standing up over me, he had that long hair we had back in the 70s, he had that army jacket on, man, you could see his smell the reefer everywhere, and he was just floating over top of my desk like this. And all of a sudden he looked down and went, hey, Mr. Highland, you're looking bad, dude. <laughs> and let, let, me tell you, let me tell you the reason I tell you that story about that kid that day. Listen to this. 
This past July, that kid that said that to me that day back in the 70s, in July celebrated 29 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> He's a multimillionaire. He lives down in Destin, Florida, and he uh, just a wonderful member of AA. You know, we have a good time. I went down that way to speak a couple years ago, and he had his kids with him. And he came running up to me and said, hey, coach, coach. He always called me coach. He said, look. I ain't never told my kids now how I was. He said, I'll make you a deal. You don't say anything about me, I won't say anything about you. <laughs> and let me tell you something. You know, one of the great gifts I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially in the last 10 years, guess where a lot of those boys that I tried to teach and coach in the 70s have shown up? They've shown up right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've got to sponsor a lot of those same guys I tried to teach and coach back in the 70s. And, and the reason I say that, my experience with this program has been that God has given me the opportunity to kind of redo and make up all those areas that I failed in so, so badly during my drinking. And that's been a real special experience for me. You know, I, I did the teaching coaching thing. It, you know, and there was some really ugly stuff there, you know. Showing up to PTA meetings drunk and, and uh, showing up to basketball games, coaching drunk and different things like that. I mean, it was not, pretty, not a pretty sight. I'm not very proud of any of that. But anyway, I hung, that, hung with that whole deal through the 70s. I can't remember exactly what the incident was, but I think it had something to do with I wasn't getting the respect that a man of my stature should be getting, and I quit. And like any good drunk, I started my own business, right? We got to start our own deal sooner or later, and I started my insurance business in 1980. Okay, but let me tell you about the 80s. It was not a good decade for me, right? I got here, I told you, April 12th of 1990. Let me also go just drop back a little bit before I get into the 80s, because when I came back from college, I married my high school sweetheart, okay? And we had met when I was a senior in high school, I went off to St. Louis, she stayed in Louisville, so it was kind of one of those relationships, right? Kind of love the one you're with, and uh, off and on, off and on. But by the time I came back and all my infamy, infamy we, were, we were not dating anymore. <clears throat> and I was living with my mom and dad when I came back because I didn't have a job, I didn't, I didn't have anything. And I happened to run into my uh, girlfriend from high school, and I noticed very quickly that, one, she had a great job, two, she had a really cool apartment, and three, she had this really neat car. And four, I fell in love really fast, you know. <laughs> so I get back in August. We get married in November of 1970. Now, hang on here. So we get uh, married November of 1970. We got divorced for the first time in 1983, but we got remarried in 1985. We got divorced again in 1987, but remarried in 1990 when I got sober. But then we got divorced in 1995. This always amazes me. Now, if I tell this in my work, people would go, what? You share that in the air? Everybody goes, oh, yeah, we got it. You know, what's the big deal? What's that all about? Well, I think Barb will understand that. This, this is all about alcohol, alcoholism, and everything that goes with it. I love him. I hate him. I hate him. I love him. He's good. He's bad. He's bad. He's good. If you don't know, there's a thing called alcoholism in the middle of any relationship. Pretty much an impossible deal. And what you had there were two people that actually cared for each other, had no idea what we were dealing with, drunk or sober. You know, it just was what it was, you know. And I have a, and, and the reason I say that is I have a very, very deep place in my heart for Al-Anon, Alateen. Anything to do with what no doubt is a family disease, you know. And I really always respect that they have Al-Anon participation at our meetings because it's been such a major part in the healing of my family as time's going on.
But anyway, uh, then I told you I rocketed into the 80s. So let me give you a little schematic of the 80s. Did not go real well. Not a good decade. I told you already I got divorced for the first time in 83, remarried her in 85, divorced in 87, remarried in 90. I was engaged to two other women in between time. I was in a nut house three different times. I was in five major car accidents. I lived 14 different places. I had 12 different business partners. I got shot and I got stabbed and I lost a quarter of a million dollars. And I was thinking, this is going okay. <laughs> you know, we are kind of always like the last to know, man. I don't know what that is all about, but we're, ne we're the last to know. And, you know, from 1982 to 1985, I went through five psychiatrists. That was a real simple program. I kept him until he started talking about alcohol. He started talking about alcohol, fired him, got me a new guy. And I was taking everything possible, every antidepressant ever made, drinking whiskey and beer on a daily basis. If you're using that recipe, I'm going to tell you, it didn't work very well for me as I look back. 1985, New Year's Eve, living with mom and dad. You know, <laughs> I used to run the guys I went to high school with. They said, hey, Tim, man, what are you doing? I say, I'm president of my own company. They say, no kidding, where are you living? I said, with well, mom and dad. <laughs> 1985, couldn't live drunk, couldn't live sober that day. New Year's Eve, I'll never forget it. Because what happened that day, I think, is, was, as I look back, was God's gift to me. Because that day, my friend alcohol that I had found at 13 years old left. You know, that friend I had left no longer was going to become my friend. Because that day, no matter how much whiskey I drank, the thrill was gone. The thrill was gone. And I knew it wasn't coming back. And I knew that my drinking was never going to get for me that what I had gotten in the early days. I knew the thrill was gone and the thrill wasn't coming back. And that was my first visit to the asylum. And Dick knows where this place is. They drug me up to Our Lady of Peace Hospital and they checked me into this little detox thing. Now let me tell you this story because this is my alcoholism in a bucket. I remember sitting down there and someday I'm going to run this nurse down and get her version. But let me tell you, I remember it. I'm sitting there as suicidal as I've ever been. But I don't know how to kill myself. I don't even know what to do with myself. But I'm sitting there and what I heard her say was, Honey, tell me about it. I said, all right, I will tell you about it. Well, two years ago, my first wife threw me out for no reason that I can think of. Oh, yeah, and I got engaged this other woman. She took off with the ring, Rick, and I haven't even paid for it. Oh, and, and did I tell you, my dad went to prison when I was 10. And, man, I don't know where all this stuff was coming from, but the more I talked, the better I felt. <laughs> and about an hour into it, she looks at me and says, well, honey, you certainly have a right to feel the way you do. I said, God, lady, you are so right. If people had messed over you like they messed over me, by God, you'd drink and be depressed too. I wasn't there an hour and I was cured, you know, because I had momentarily forgot it wasn't me. It was you guys. It had always been you guys. If you do right, I got around the right people, I wouldn't have a problem. I spent the next 16 days in there kind of helping everybody else. <laughs> I did. I thought God sent me there on a mission, you know. They made me head of the stress class. You know, I got a ribbon for the best ceramic in shop. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. Let me tell you how crazy it was. About halfway through the stay, nurse says to me, would you like a pass out tonight? I must have thought she said, you want to pass out tonight? I said, what? She said, yeah, if you want to go out for a couple hours, as long as you're back by curfew. I said, well, thank you very much. Call my best buddy. He picks me at the nut house. We go right to the watering hole. Slam down six, eight beers. You know, got a couple shots. I bought this big old bottle of wine. I'm telling about all the people. I'm helping back to the hospital. You know, just got ripped. I said, hey, I got curfew at the nut house. You've got to get me back. 
So we go back to Our Lady of Peace. I'm stumbling out to stumble in the door, and I look back at him. He's just got tears dripping down his face. I said, what is wrong with you? He said, Tim, you do not belong in there. I do. <laughs> God. And I think I said something, you know, like, I think you're right, and when you get out of here, I'll help you, you know? And you guys, that's 1985, okay? It's going to be five years before I get to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know what I did? I came out of there and I started over. Got me a new girlfriend, got me a new place to live, got me a new business partner. I was always starting over. And if you listen to our stories, we're the best starter overs in the world. Can't finish much of anything, baby, but we can flat start over. I came out and got back with my most frequent wife, as I call her, and... Uh, we changed houses, we changed cars, we tried everything, you know, but as the old timers have often said, you know, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> the drunk was still in the middle of the room. New Year's, about New Year's Eve again, 1985, she threw me out, and I spent the last six months of my drinking living out in the guy's basement in the south end of Louisville, you know, and I can't tell you anything miraculous happened there, you know. I can tell you this. On April 12th of 1990, I got up out of that basement. And something was weird. Something was different. And I sat on the side of the bed that morning, and I'd realized, Tim, you've lost it all again. You've lost your family. You've lost your wife. You've lost your business is about bankrupt. And uh, I got on my knees, and I said, God, I don't know what's going on, but I, I, I don't know where you are, but I, I need help. You know. And I got up, and I went into my work. And let me tell you about my work. My office is a busy, busy place. The phone rings all day. People are in and out of that office all day. April 12th of 1990, I sit down at quarter to eight. I didn't move a muscle till noon. The phone never rang one time that day. Nobody came in the office that day. You know, the book talks about a moment of clarity, and I guess that's what happened. Because the only feeling I had was, Tim, man, it's over. If you want it to be over, and you know what the problem is. And I reached in my desk drawer. <clears throat> there was a meeting directory of Alcoholics Anonymous, which a guy had given me two and a half years before. It was right there the whole time. And I went to the Tolkien Club, and Dick knows where this is, out on uh, DuPont Lane on a 3 o'clock meeting. And here's what I need to tell you. From that day and that meeting till this morning, over the last 25-plus years, I am telling you, I have laughed sometimes in here harder than I think my guts can stand. <laughs> but I need to also tell you, I've cried more tears than I thought a man like me would ever cry. I have felt sadness and grief like I didn't think I could handle. And the reason I say that if you're new, if you were like me, and I've heard my friend Bob say this many times, when I got here, I was really hoping that this sobriety thing was going to be about the absence of problems in my life. And you guys said, oh, no, 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 no. No, Tim, who told you that? I said, Tim, here's what sobriety is about. You're going to get to be part of life, and you're going to get to be part of it in body, in mind, and in spirit. And when you said that, the bell rang, because you know why? My wife used to say to me all the time, Tim, you're not even here when you're here. I say, what do you mean? And here's what I know today. If you read our book, it says we have this threefold disease. And what I have come to understand, my disease was this. I was either drinking thinking about drinking or thinking about me. And that doesn't leave any room for anybody else. That's the inclusivity of alcoholism. And the bottom line is this. If you can only bring your body and you can't bring your mind and you can't bring your spirit, you can't be a husband, you can't be a granddad, you can't be a father, you can't be much of anything other than a body in the room. And the reason I know that, I'm on the flip side. I've got eight grandkids. 
You know, a couple months ago, there's three 12-year-olds, and we sat on the floor and played Monopoly for three hours. A guy like me couldn't give you three minutes of his time. To be in the moment, to be in the present moment of my life, I never got it. You know, and what I'm saying is the obsession of alcoholism can be every bit as debilitating as actually when I'm under the influence, and I never got that. But I get it today, and you've given me over the last 25 years, you've restored and given me the ability to be in the present and sit three hours with three 12-year-olds and be a grandfather and be a husband and be, you know, a man among men and be, a, be an employer and be an employee. You know, that is a tremendous gift, and the people who've been around here know what I'm talking about, you know. And if you're new, hang on, and someday you'll understand exactly what being present in your own life is all about. <laughs> what a neat thing that is, because I went for 42 years, and I was absent from my own life. You know, and if you read our book, it clearly talks about that. It clearly talks about, Dick talked about it last night. The obsession of self is so great that we block out everything and everybody else. There is no sunlight of the spirit. There is no sunlight at all because we're closed up in this little bitty box. You know, when I showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous finally, I need to tell you this. You know, I, uh, I did not do it right. You know, for the first 14 months, I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't have a home group. And I certainly hadn't done a step. And I was about as crazy as you can be uh, dry. You know, I was so dry, I was about to go up in flames, you know. And, man, I was angry. I was so angry. And everybody's talked about this this week. I didn't know who I was angry at, but, boy, I was angry at somebody. And I had met this little guy who became my first sponsor. And uh, some of you know him. His name's Burns. That kind of identifies him very clearly. He's not too many guys named Burns. And, uh, but, but the bottom line, I would run into him. And I would tell him, you know, I am angry, man. I'm going to punch somebody out and this. And he would always, I said, I can't go to sleep at night. You know, I'm just crazy. He said, Tim, just, just remember, God is love. God is love. And every night I would go to sleep going, God is love, God is love, God is love. Still do that sometime. But 14 months drier in the bone, God is love was not getting it done. And I thought, if I go to that little sucker, he tells me, God is love one more time, I'm going to drill him. I'm going to knock him out. And sure enough, I called him with the issue of the day, and sure enough, he said, Tim, just remember, God is love. I said, damn it, I know that, but I'm so angry, man, and I'm so depressed. And he said, good, 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 good. <laughs> Don't you love old-timers, man? I said, what do you mean good? He said, Tim, listen to this. In Alcoholics Anonymous, God is love, but love is action. God is love, steps one, two, and three, your powerlessness, his power. Steps four through nine, your simple responsibility to clean up your mess. Step ten is a refresher course every day. Step eleven hooks you up with your God. Step twelve hooks you up with us. What do you say, buddy? Are you ready? I said, yes, sir, I am ready. Because I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to kill you, you know? And that was the day he put me into Lampton Baptist Church, and I became the coffee maker there on Wednesday morning. And that was the day he put me into a men's big book group, that exists to this very day in my office on Wednesday nights, and I did the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was the day I found out the greatest secret in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what that is? I found out where the fun was. The fun is in the middle. The fun is in the middle. It's around people just like it are here today, people who take their time to help other people, people who came and set the chairs up, people who stay and pick up the ashtrays like Dick was talking, people who give other people rides home. That's the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's where the joy is. There's where the fun is. I had no idea. 
And from that day, you guys, I've never gotten out of the middle of AA because the worst spot I've ever been in is the edges of Alcoholics Anonymous with one foot in and one foot out. It's about as miserable as it gets. So if you're new, you know, get involved. Get involved in the next convention they're going to have and get involved in your home group. I love Dick last night. In our home group right now, we're working to try to find everybody a job. You know, because I'll never forget when I got hands-on with that coffee. And, man, I hated it. I'd get that coffee grounds all over me every day, and I'd be cussing and moaning, but it was the thing that made Alcoholics Anonymous real to me. And so we strive today in our home group to find it. Give people jobs. Give them something to do so they feel a part of this wonderful fellowship. <clears throat> you know, also, <clears throat> if you listen there during the 80s, when I got here in 1990, I owed a quarter of a million dollars to people who really wanted it back. <laughs> they really did, and they really bothered me about it a lot, which I thought was very unfair. I was trying to get sober after all, and all they could think about was money. You know, God. It was awful. And I'm telling you guys, I'd come in my office every day and I'd start shuffling papers from one side of the desk to the other. And, of course, like any good drunk, I'm trying to think of one big deal, right, to come up with a quarter million dollars. By 10 o'clock, that fear would start to shut me down. By 10.30, I'd be back in my apartment and crawl up in a ball. I mean, it was happening almost every day. Self-centered fear was just shutting me down. I'm in a meeting one night sitting next to an old guy. I don't know his name today. But I'm whining about this, tell him I'm going to go bankrupt, my business is bad. He said, see me after the meeting. So I see him after the meeting. He says, tell me about your business. I said, ah, well, okay, uh, well, it opens at 8 o'clock. He said, good, Tim, you be there at 8 o'clock. Not 8.05, Tim, not 8.10, you be there at 8 o'clock. What's next? I said, well, I'll go on sales calls. He said, good, go on sales calls. What's next? I said, I'll go to lunch. He said, good, Tim, go to lunch. And Tim, come back from lunch. I thought, that's a good point. <laughs> What's next? I said, I come in and do my paperwork. He said, what's next? I said, well, 445 works over. He said, good, go home. Have dinner with your family. Go to your meeting. Come home and say your prayers. And then he hit me with a big one. He said, and Tim, do the same thing the next day. I was like, wow, what a concept. I mean, you're like, do that every day, huh? And see what that old man told me, and Don has since given it a name. He was telling me to do the stitches and leave the patterns up to God. Tim, your only job, son, is to do the little stitches and leave the patterns up to God. Now, as simple as that sounds, you guys, what happens to me, when I start stitching, I start thinking, what is this? A hat, shirt, pants, and when's it going to be done? And you said, no, no, no. You just stitch, and we promise you that the pattern that God comes up with will be better than you could ever imagine. Let me tell you. So I started doing that. I started getting there at 8, going on sales calls, going to lunch, coming back from lunch. And, you know, I'm like, this is not working. This is dumb. This is stupid. You know, I checked my bank account six weeks into this. I still owe 249920 bucks. You know, this is a slow process. But I kept doing it. Interesting thing happens. And, you know, and, and the bottom line was somehow I, I didn't want to do it, but somehow what he had said was I knew it was the only thing that I could do. And what I was doing is doing those little stitches and having the faith and the trust that God had a plan. Let me tell you a story. Five years down the road, I get a call. I come back to my office one day after my home group, which is in the morning, and there are six phone messages there. Five of them are from AA guys. The last one was from a business reporter in the, for Business First in Louisville. So I call this business lady, a uh, reporter, and she says, Mr. Highland, we'd like to do an article on your business. It's one of the fastest growing of its kind in the Louisville area. 
But I'm like, well, great. You know, that's really nice. I'm, I'm very appreciative. I said, what is it you'd like to know? She said, sir, what was it that you did that really turned your business around? Ha, <laughs> ha, man. I got two things going on in my head, right? I had this one story. I came, pulled myself up by the bootstraps, came up with this incredible idea and rocketed this company to start them. That ain't what I said. I said, lady, here's the truth. My office opens at 8 o'clock. I get there at 8. I go to sales calls. I come back from sales calls. I go to lunch, come back from lunch. I went right through the whole thing, right? And when I'm done, there's like silence on the other end of the phone. <clears throat> she says, thank you, sir. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> and you know what? I knew there wasn't going to be an article. But I also knew in my heart that I had told her the right thing. I had told her the truth. You know, as Don tells me, Tim, your job is each day ask God for the divine inspiration to find the next stitch in your personal life, the next stitch in your business life, the next stitch in your A life. You know, it's always there. The problem with the stitches and a guy like me, I'm a big deal guy. And the stitches aren't big deals, are they? They're little bitty steps that we have to take each day with the faith that God is going to have a beautiful pattern. You know, and that business today is, I still do the same thing today that I did then, and it's just flourishing. You know, it's just been a great, great ride with that whole thing. And Dick said it last night, I don't know how this works. The more people I tend to work with, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, the better my business gets. And I can't explain that correlation to anybody because it makes no sense from a business standpoint. But I guess it does make sense in God's world. And I think, you know, I don't need to understand other than if you help God's kids, as Dick said last night, Dick and Chuck Chamberlain said, God will help you. You know, and sometimes, you know, that gets very trying because sometimes God's kids can get a little frustrating, right? God's kids can, can get on your nerves. But I've also found that if you take care of God's kids, he does take care of you. You know, the other thing I wanted to share with you is uh, when we, uh, we talk about this thing about relationships and Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I don't know that we're any worse at it than the normal people out there. Yeah, we are. We're a lot worse at it than I people. Anyway, but, it, you know, what I want to tell you all very clearly, that whole deal wasn't funny when it happened. You know, getting divorced when you're drunk is one thing. Losing your marriage in sobriety is a whole different ballgame, right? And when I lost that marriage at five years sober, I was devastated. Because I'm like, what the hell? I'm trying my best, God. I'm helping these drunks. I'm, you know, and what's going on? I can't seem to have a good relationship. And I came to you guys, and you guys always say the same thing. Well, we well, don't know, Tim, but just keep helping drunks, buddy. Keep helping drunks. So I kept helping drunks. Kept helping drunks, six years sober, seven years sober. And, and I guess in all honesty what happened was I, I'm thinking, well, God, I don't mind helping drunks. But boy, I'd sure like to have a partner to help drunks with. And boom, there she was, right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, my partner to help drunks with. And on paper, this looked like one of the best AA relationships ever. She was five years sober, more sober than me, real involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I just envisioned Bill Wilson looking down and saying, this is just a great, I give you my blessing, both of you. We dated the mandatory three months and got married. You know? Oh, and let me, let, let me say this to you. I mean, I think both of us thought it was a great thing. Both of us thought it was the best thing that happened to us. I did. I really did. It lasted eight months. Eight months. And now I'm ten years sober. And now I'm on my knees asking God, what is so broken in me? What is so wrong in me that I can't have a relationship, you know, with another partner? And I came to you guys, and you guys said the same thing. Tim, we don't know. 
But keep helping drunks, buddy. Keep helping drunks. And the bottom line is, let me say that, we, we talk about that a lot, but it is the one thing, and the book talks about that, that has helped me through everything. Keeping on the firing line, keeping a drunk in front of me has been the one thing that's helped me through everything over the last 25 years it's happened. So I have a lot of, a lot of belief and in, in, in faith in that thing. You know, but the bottom line was, I want to share this with you. Uh, uh, on my way to permanent celibacy in Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> a strange thing happened. Uh, we, after that divorce, I ended up living with my dad for a little bit again and then eventually got my place back and kept helping drunks. And uh, I guess about 2002 now, about 13 years ago, I get a call from my most frequent wife, mother of my children. Remember her? And she was down in South Carolina. She had the kids down there on vacation. And she said, what are you doing? I said, well, <laughs> nothing. I'm, I'm living with Dad again. And she said, uh, well, you want to come down and see the kids and the grandkids? And I said, well, sure. I got nothing to do. And I drove down there. Now, keep in mind, here are two people who have been married and divorced three times, known each other since we were 17 years old. For some reason, the walls were always too high. We just couldn't do anything about it. On that trip in 2002, a weird thing happened. You know, for the first time, we became friends. For the first time, we agreed to be parents and co-parents. For the first time, I don't know why, we agreed to be grandparents and work that together. And those walls that were always so high, you know, all of a sudden didn't seem so high. I can't explain it to you. And we came back to Louisville, and we started to date. We had never dated. You know, we just married. <laughs> we started to date, and every Friday night I would take her out, you know, for a number of months there. And then finally I sold the condo I had, and I moved in with her. And just about this time, about 13 years ago, we were sitting there, and I looked at her, and she looked at me. I said, well, what do you think? This coming November 28th will be our 45th gross wedding anniversary. I have no idea what the net is, none. But, you know, let me share this with you. I, you know, I said to my sponsor, is this pretty crazy? And he said, well, yeah, it's crazy. He said, but, Tim, maybe not. He said, you know, if our program's about anything, it's about transformation. You know the thing about transformation? We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to look. And we don't know who's going to be involved. You know why? Because God transforms. We don't. You know, again, my friend Bob talks about we plant the seed. We keep the weeds away from it. We water it, but we don't grow it. God grows it in His time when He wants to grow it. And I have to tell you, that has to be what happens. We have the best relationship today. You know, sometimes I have to hit myself in the head and say, Is that, did that all really even happen? We are buddies today. We are friends. You know, we share everything together. And, and Dick knows this. About four years ago, she was diagnosed with a rare form of what they call choroidal melanoma on, a, on her eyeball. Serious stuff. They took the tumor off, but the bottom line is, supposedly... The cancer cells are running around in her blood and can any day show up on her liver or her, her lungs. So every six months she goes and gets a CT. But you know what? We have lived like with that just the way you taught us in Alcoholics Anonymous, one day at a time. And knowing that we have today and the gift that God has given us. And what I can tell you is, and, and through you know this point in time, coming up on almost four and a half years now, you know, there is no cancer that's shown up. And maybe it will and maybe it won't, you know, but the, the bottom line is that disease has not been able to take away from our life or our love because we were taught in Alcoholics Anonymous how to deal, just as Dick was talking about last night, with anything that comes along in our life and use these principles 
and apply those principles, and we have a very good life for that today. And I love her dearly, and uh, I, I can't tell you, I just feel blessed beyond belief for that whole story. And, uh, you know, let me also finish up by sharing this with you. I had three beautiful kids, right? I had two sons, and I had a baby girl, you know. And uh, Amy, who spoke here yesterday, is very dear to me, and i tell you why she is. She, she reminds me of my daughter so, so much. And I've, I've seen Amy when she came in the first time, and, I, and I've seen her back this time, and she's in my home group. And she reminds me of my little girl so much. And uh, but anyway, my little girl was their daddy's daughter <laughs> from the beginning. You know, we knew it from the beginning. She was a little toddler. Her first little phrase was, I'll do it myself. Her second little phrase was, is, you're not the boss to me. You know, I said, oh, hell, here we go. And by the time she was 12 years old, I'm finding six packs in her backpack. I'm finding half pints in her shoes. I'm getting her out of jail for shoplifting. I'm chasing her all over the city of Louisville. She's her old man all over the place. Now, let me tell you about this kid. By far, my most talented child. Not only she's talented, she's beautiful. She's tall, blonde, blue-eyed, gifted athlete, gifted volleyball player, gifted tennis player, gifted artist. But she had the disease of alcohol and alcoholism. It was pretty clear pretty early. And about 15 years ago, she got a scholarship to the Chicago Art Institute for her art, and she went up there. You know, and uh, as always, when our kids leave us, you know, we wonder what's going on. With her, I pretty much knew what was going on. And once in a while, she would come home, and once in a while, I would start to see the deterioration. And then one day, she came home and said, Dad, I'm going to Los Angeles. You know, I've been accepted into the second city out there which is the comedy thing, by the way, that you know, Bill Murray and all those guys came through. And she went to Los Angeles. But the bottom line was that she was living in Los Angeles for about a year in her car on a liquid diet. And in addition to her alcoholism, she also had the disease of anorexia. And I want to tell you, those two things together mean one thing. They mean death. Because if you know anything about anorexia, your body starts to consume itself after a while. And I knew she was living in this car on this liquid diet, and once in a while she would call me and I would talk to her. And, and about uh, 14 years ago, I guess, she came home for the first time in a couple years, and let me tell you what I saw. I'll never forget the image. Here was my baby girl, my beautiful blonde baby girl, and her eyes were all caved into her head. Her cheeks were collapsed. Her hair was matted down to her head. Her teeth were falling out. She was so thin you could sit there and count her ribs. And here's what I'll never forget. I looked her in the eyes as a sober member of AA and said, Honey, is there anything that I can do for you? And she looked me back in the eyes and said, Dad, I am fine. I will call you if I need you. You know, how powerful is the disease of alcoholism? Hmm? How powerful. And I'll never forget that moment because it tells me what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a disease like none other in the world. It's not like cancer. We know we have that. The problem with our disease is we are always the last to know that we have a deadly disease. And she left and she went back to Los Angeles, and I knew, you guys, it was only a matter of time before I got a call. And about four weeks later, the phone rang. And the good news was it was her. The bad news is by this time she was so weak she was whispering. She said, Daddy, now here I'm 12 years sober. Here's my kid 2,000 miles away, and she's saying, Daddy, what should I do? And I need to tell you what was going through my mind. Is a Daddy, if you're a Daddy, the only thing I could think about is I'm going to get on an airplane, and I'm going to go out there and bring my baby home. And also what went through my mind is, hey, Tim, what do you think about the A&A &A now, buddy? Good enough for her? 
What about this 12 steps you're always popping off about? Is it good enough for your little girl? And here was the big one. Tim, what about that God you're always talking about? Is it good enough for your little girl? And you know what? If you're a dad, you understand this. It didn't seem to be good enough. I just wanted to get her. I just wanted to go out and bring her home. But 12 years sober, and I guess because of you guys and being around here enough, that's not what I said. I said, honey, here's a man's phone number in Alcoholics Anonymous in Los Angeles. I pray and I hope you will call him. And I hung up that phone, you guys, and I mean, I, I sobbed and cried for hours because I'm thinking, uh, you know, 50-50 at best that she makes that call or I go out and bring her home in a box. But what I wanted to share, it was such a moment in my sobriety because I also knew something in my heart. I had given her, whether I liked it or not, the only thing that I know that's worked consistently and persistently in the history of mankind for people like you and me. And that's a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And whether I liked it or not, just because it was my kid, just because she was 2,000 miles away, that's all I got. That's what God gave me through Don and Burns and Dick and people ahead of me. It had to be enough. And somewhere in my heart I knew that no matter what happened. You know, and I'm very happy to report, you know, that this last year... In July, her mom and I did get on an airplane and fly to Los Angeles to help her celebrate her 13 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And I'll just share this with you very quickly. And, and I've been sharing this lately because I think if there's a message I want to leave you, because it's the message that I need to take from that whole thing as a sober member of AA. The man's phone number I gave her was a man named Scott Redman. And Dick knows him very well. Scott's no longer with us, and that's the reason I'm using his last name. He died of pancreatic cancer about four or five years ago. And here's the interesting thing. If this is not AA, what is? Scott's a Jewish man from New York living in Los Angeles. And he's going to be the one that God's going to use to help this little blonde Catholic girl from Kentucky. Because when she called Scott that night, Scott was 26 years sober. And I could easily see it happening. He could have said, well, honey, I listen, I... I don't have time to get over there to see you. I mean, I'll have some woman call you tomorrow. Or, honey, listen, I, I, I'll see you uh, at the club in a couple days. Thank God he didn't do that. Thank God he got in his car and got across Los Angeles and got to that kid. And I don't know why he didn't. Maybe he had a sense that it was time. I do know this as a direct result, and you've read at every meeting that I am responsible, that any time, anywhere, the hand... If AA would be there when anybody's reaching out, and that night, thank God, Scott Redman was responsible. Because, you know, if he wasn't, i got another story to tell, and this story's entirely different because that kid would have been dead. And I'll be ever grateful to him, and I've told him that, and I got to tell him that before he died. You know, that, thank God, that you weren't 26 years sober, and you weren't complacent like a lot of us get, and you weren't like, you know, no, I'm going to watch the ball game. I don't have time to be chasing newcomers around. Sometimes when we get along in sobriety, we think that's for the new people to do. I hope I always remember that I have one day at a time. The gift's been given to me one day at a time. And so the, the responsibility that goes along with that is one day at a time for now and to the day they throw dirt in my face. And that's why I'm asked to come to Owensboro. I'm asked to come to anywhere you bet, anytime, anywhere. The hand of AA reaches out. I'm going to try to be there. And, you know, one of the things Scott used to say is stay at your sobriety station. 
And my last thing I will say to all of you, let's all go home from here, from this conference, you know, take the energy, take the gift we've been given, get back at our sobriety stations, because you know what, someday it's going to be somebody else's kid, somebody else's grandkid, and you or I are going to get the call. And let's hope we'll suit up and show up like he didn't, because I'll be forever grateful for that. Thanks. I'm Tim, and I'm now calling.